Section 5 of The Jolly Parisians and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Jolly Parisians by Emile Zola, translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 5 The Reward. Here is the denouement of the adventure. Oh, what a lesson! but let me strive to give the particulars calmly. On Sunday, M. Nijian was elected councillor-general. Upon examining the ballots, it became evident that without our aid the candidate would have been defeated. My father, who had seen M. Nijian, had given me to understand that a man so absolutely mediocre was not to be feared. Besides, he wished to beat the radical candidate. But in the evening, after dinner, my father's old nature awoke in him, and he said to me, all this is not exactly the proper thing, but they all drummed into my ears that I was working for you. Now, do what you ought to. As for me, I am going to get out of the business, for I no longer have the slightest comprehension of what they are at. On Monday and Tuesday I hesitated about going to Les Moreaux. It seemed to me that it would be somewhat brutal to go so quickly to seek my reward. The children had ceased to bother me now. I had argued the matter over with myself, and had proved that Louise was as little a mother as possible. Was it not said in my province that the Parisian ladies never sacrifice a pleasure to their children, and that they abandon them to the care of servants in order to be free? Yesterday, Wednesday, all my scruples finally disappeared. Impatience was devouring me. I started on the warpath at eight o'clock in the morning. My project was to arrive at Les Moreaux at the same early hour as before, and to find Louise alone when she arose. But, when I dismounted from my horse, a servant informed me that Madame had not yet quitted her chamber, without offering to notify her, however. I replied that I would wait. And I did wait. For two whole hours. I did not know how often I made the tour of the flower-garden. From time to time I raised my eyes to the window of the second story but the blinds remained hermetically closed. Weary and disgusted by this prolonged promenade, I, at last, went to the voluminous bower and sat down within it. That morning the weather was cloudy, and the sunlight did not glide like golden dust between the leaves. It was almost as dark as night beneath the drapery of verdure. I had reflected, I had resolved to play for all. My conviction was that if I hesitated again Louise would never accept my homage— I encouraged myself by evoking her gaiety and hoydenish ways. My plan was simple, and I had matured it. As soon as I was alone with her, I would take her hands and cautiously begin by kissing her on the neck. For the tenth time I was perfecting my plan, when suddenly Louise appeared. "'Where have you hidden yourself?' said she, gaily, searching for me in the obscurity. "'Ah, you are there. For the past ten minutes I have been trotting after you.' I ask your pardon for having made you wait. I answered her, in a somewhat hoarse voice, that there was nothing wearisome about waiting when one thought of her. I notified you, she resumed, without appearing to heed this bit of fatuity, that I am a countrywoman only the first week. Now I have become a Parisienne again, and stick to my bed. She had remained at the entrance of the bower, as if she were afraid to risk venturing amid the darkness of the leaves. Well, why don't you come out? she at last demanded of me. We have something to talk about. But it's very nice in here, said I, in a quivering voice. We can talk on this bench. 
She hesitated a second longer, then she said bravely, As you will, but it's so dark in there. However, words are without color. She sat down beside me. I felt myself growing faint. So the hour had come at last. A moment more and I would take her hands. Meanwhile, altogether at her ease, she continued to talk in her clear voice, which was not in the slightest degree affected by any emotion. I will not thank you in cut and dried phrases. You gave us powerful aid, without which we would have gone to the dogs. I was not in a condition to interrupt her. I was all in a tremble. I exhorted myself to audacity. Besides, between us, words are useless, she resumed. We made a bargain, you know. She laughed as she said that. That laugh suddenly decided me. I seized her hands, and she did not withdraw them. I felt them so small and so warm in mine. She abandoned them amicably, familiarly, while she said, And now it's for me to fulfill that bargain, isn't it? Then I dared to be brutal. I drew her hands toward me to place them upon my lips. The darkness had increased. A cloud must have passed above our heads. The strong odor of the grass intoxicated me in this leafy nook. But— before my lips had touched her skin, she freed herself with a strength I could never have dreamed she possessed, and, in her turn, she seized me roughly by the wrists. She held me without anger, and said in a voice still calm, though somewhat reproving in its tone, "'Come now, don't be foolish. This is what I feared. Will you permit me to give you a lesson while I have you here in this little nook?' She had the smiling severity of a mother who reprimands a bad boy." From the very first day I fully understood what was in the wind. They had related horrors to you about me, had they not? You have hoped for some unutterable things, and I excuse you, for you know nothing of our world. You came to Paris with the ideas of this country of wolves. No doubt you will say to yourself that it was in some degree my fault if you deceived yourself. I ought to have stopped you. You would have retired had I uttered a single word— it is true that I did not utter that word. I allowed you to go on, and you must think me an abominable coquette. Do you know why I did not utter that word? I stammered. The astonishment caused by this scene had paralyzed me. She grasped my wrists tighter. She shook me, talking to me at such close quarters that I felt her breath in my face. I did not utter it because you interested me, and I wished to give you this lesson— you do not understand yet, but you will reflect and divine what I mean. We are greatly slandered. We give, perhaps, sufficient purchase for that. Only, you see, there are pure women, even among those who appear the wildest and most compromised. All this is very delicate. I repeat that you will reflect and comprehend. Let go of me, I murmured, utterly confused. No, I will not let go of you. Ask my pardon if you want to be released. And despite her tone of pleasantry, I felt that she was growing irritated, that tears of anger were mounting to her eyes because of the affront I had offered her. A feeling of esteem and genuine respect for this woman at once so charming and so firm was growing within me. Her Amazonian grace, in bearing virtuously, the imbecility of her husband, her mixture of coquetry and rigor, her disdain for slander, and her role of a man in her household, concealed beneath the recklessness of her conduct, made her a very complex personage who filled me with admiration. Pardon, I said humbly. 
She released me. I instantly arose, while she remained tranquilly upon the bench, no longer fearing anything either from the obscurity or the troubling odor of the foliage. She resumed her gay voice and said, "'Now I get back to our bargain. As I am very honest, I pay my debts. Here is your appointment as an embassy secretary. I received it yesterday evening.' And, seeing that I hesitated about taking the envelope which she offered me, why, she cried, with an accent of irony, it seems to me that at present you can accept a benefit from my husband without a blush. Such was the denouement of my first adventure. When we quitted the bower, Felix was on the terrace, with Gaucherand and Bertha. He puckered up his lips on seeing me advance with my appointment in my hand. Without doubt, he was posted about everything and was laughing at me. I took him aside and bitterly reproached him for having allowed me to make such a mistake. But he answered me that experience alone formed youth, and, as I called his attention to Bertha, who was walking in front of us, questioning him also about her, he gave a shrug of the shoulders, the signification of which was exceedingly clear. Such being the state of things, I must admit that, in spite of all, I am yet unable to fully comprehend the strange condition of society, in which the most spotless women behave so singularly. But what gave me the finishing stroke was to learn from Gaucheron himself that my father had invited him and his wife to spend three days at Le Boquet. Felix smiled again, as he announced to us that he should return to Paris on the morrow. Then I made my escape, urging as a pretext that I had formally promised my father to be back in time for breakfast— I was already at the end of the avenue when I caught sight of a gentleman in the cabriolet. Quite likely it was Monsieur Nijon. Ma foi, I am delighted to have missed him again. On Sunday, Gaucherand and his wife will install themselves at Le Bouquet. What a task is before me! End of section 5